Chemical City Double Reeds is a full-service double reed shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Reed Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH, all caps, no spaces. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at chemicalcityreads.com. Hey, oboists. Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes F. Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 toward shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Jackie. How are you doing lately? I'm doing okay. We got some bad news yesterday that uh, we wanted to mention right off off the top of the dish here. So maybe I'll just jump right in. Please do. Uh, The great Bert Lucarelli, oboe soloist, uh, educator, and mentor has passed away. And yeah, he was my teacher for my undergraduate at the heart school and it was a really emotional day I was just thinking back on all of the experiences that I had with him and literally everything that I have now I can trace back to him Mm -hmm. I mean my high school teacher studied with him and then I studied with him and he opened my eyes to what it means to be a musician I remember um, I went to Hart as a freshman uh, as a double major in music education and performance. And that first semester, I was so excited to go to every lesson and so not excited <laughs> to go to my ed classes <laughs> that after a semester, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm dropping it. <laughs> and it was just because of him. You know, he set me on my path. We've heard countless Mr. Lucarelli stories on the podcast, but is there any like special memory or thought of him that you want to share as we're kind of tributing him? So I have a couple of memories that really stick out to me. Okay, so I, uh, it was one summer, probably before my junior year of college or maybe before my senior year, um, he had offered if we wanted to go to New York and take a lesson that we could do that. So I, I took him up on it and I took the train into New York. And uh, at the time, I was a really tense player. Um, my face would get beat red and I was just like just tension everywhere. And he tried, he was trying everything he could possibly think of to get me to relax my body while I was playing and one of those things was starting a long tone bent over in half so I was standing and I was hinged over at the hip playing with the oboe between my knees just a long tone and then standing up 
while I played the long tone and I lost consciousness. <laughs> I passed out immediately. I must have been out for like a second. I woke up sitting in a chair. I had no idea what day it was. I had no idea where I was. <laughs> so confused. And I was like, what happened? And he said, oh, honey, it's okay. Don't worry. I caught your oboe. You passed out a little bit, but your oboe is fine. Let's go get some lunch. (laughs) (laughs) We put the instrument away and we went and got Italian down the street. It was so funny. I will never forget it. I will never forget it. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he just, he just was a really bright light and he was so inspiring. And if you talk to anyone who knew him, I bet they have a million stories about how they changed, how he changed their life. And one of the things that was special about him at the time was that um, this was like even back 20 years ago when I was studying with him was he did not care if you went on to be a musician or not. Hmm. He would say all the time, I don't care if you graduate with an oboe degree and then go to law school or go become a chef or go do whatever it is you want to do. He said, it doesn't matter to me because the stuff that we're working on goes beyond music and you will always be a success no matter what you decide to do. And he only cared about people like following their path and being happy. And uh, he just had such a zest for life. And uh, you made such a beautiful video yesterday that we posted to our social media. And it's been wonderful to see everyone's memories of him on social media. And you bet your butt I'm going to be at the memorial. And uh, yeah, just really sad, but also very grateful and planning ways that I'm going to um, memorialize him in my own way. Well, if our listeners are are listening to your tribute and want to have a experience his wisdom firsthand, they can go listen to episode 28. And if you are mourning him and also sad and grateful like me, we're thinking of you and sending you lots of love. Absolutely. But switching gears just a little bit to our dish topic, uh, we wanted to make sure to do this on this episode because this is kind of our back to school episode. I don't know about you, but the next time we record, the semester will be in session. The academic year will have begun. Why are you traumatizing me? I know, I know, I know, I know. But uh, (laughs) we got a listener, uh, we got a request for a dish topic from one of our listeners who's currently in high school, who said that they were interested in hearing about what the day-to-day experience is like for a college music major. And I just thought that was a fantastic thing to ask and something we haven't really discussed so far mm-hmm. and people showed up on social media mm-hmm. and so I want to get into their responses but Glee as you think back about being a college undergraduate music major is there anything that sticks out to you about your schedule or experience oh my god I remember on Tuesdays and Thursdays I was in rehearsal like orchestra and wind ensemble from one until six mm-hmm Every Tuesday and Thursday, 
Yes. I was thinking about that. I was like, what do I think is a difference? And I think it's just like, I was a bassoon zealot. Yes. Like I loved the bassoon before, but it was just like college. I was very aware, like, this is my time to like immerse myself in it. And I feel like it was the years when I was just like really falling in love, obsessed, obsessed with playing my instrument and listening. Yes. Like you said, I remember I was in orchestra and I was in band. And I remember there were semesters that I would even do the symphony band, the non-audition band. Why? Because I was just like, I just want to play. Mm-hmm. I just want to play. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, the idea of, be, of having a student in three ensembles plus chamber music plus mm-hmm. music ensemble. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. Look yeah. At my student and be like, Baroque ensemble. Out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, more. Yeah. I felt the same way. And I remember being in class from like, I don't know, eight to four or eight to six every day. And then like practicing until God knows what time in the night and then of course you have to do your homework <laughs> oh yeah the the lack of sleep the minimal amount of sleep that I could get by on is just like baffling to me now but listen I have to go to bed by 9 p.m now <laughs> and back then I I wouldn't have even blinked if I didn't start practicing until 9 p.m now, this is making us sound like a bunch of old ladies, though. So I think we should get to our listener responses. <laughs> uh, Yamalit says, my typical day as a college student is uh, wake up and look through my passion planner schedule. If it's a Monday, I have studio uh, with my professor and colleagues. If it's a Wednesday, then I have music ed seminar. Um, get ready for my 8 a.m. classes and hope to not get a parking ticket from my school. Uh, the first half of the day consists of classes till roughly uh, 2 p.m. as a music education major, then one or two gen ed classes throughout the day. Second half of the day is ensembles till around five. And the last part of my day is trying to cram in practice or practice whenever I have time throughout the day. She does not suggest skipping lunch or dinner, cram in snacks throughout your day and get your sleep, which we co-sign. And meal planning can be really helpful or just like packing a lunch. I take my lunch to faculty meetings. I'm like, listen, you're going to deal with the crunch because my day is crunched. Sorry. And I'm eating carrots because I need the beta carotene. Okay, so this submission is from Reeve. I usually start off with a quick breakfast and coffee at home. I'm lucky this semester that I don't have any 8 a.m.s, which might be the first time that's ever happened to me going into my third year. I go to my lectures, and by the time I get out, it's lunchtime. I'm lucky I live in an area with charitable churches that do weekly college lunches. Yes. So I usually go out for either a free lunch or lunch at a nearby restaurant if they do a student discount, BOGO Wednesdays, etc. Sometimes I practice when I get back, unless I have a lesson, in which case I warm up. Then it's usually large ensemble. After that is dinner time. And after that is work. I fit in practice whenever I can throughout the day. That is packed. That's quite packed. That's quite packed, Reeve. <laughs> Uh, Gwyneth says, as a senior oboist who is also a music therapy major, my oh, schedule varies greatly from day to day. That's that's a good point to make. That high school, I think your schedule is pretty streamlined, and in college, it can be wildly different mm-hmm. uh, days of the week. Uh, then she says, uh, but what is consistent 
uh, is that between 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. for most days, I am either in ensembles and practice rooms, uh, in a music therapy class or site, in gen ed classes as the only musician, driving, eating, or crying in my car, Gwyneth. And uh, last teaching lessons till I drop and then finally getting to homework. But hey, it's my senior year, my last semester. I've made all A's since being here. Let's finish out strong. That's right. Finish strong. You can do it. All right. Michael says music comp day. Oh, a composition major. Love it. Theory slash oral skills, another theory slash music history class, major ensemble, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, seminar, Tuesday, Thursday, another class. Practice, make reads, compose, assignments. Day typically starts at 8 or 9 a.m. and ends around 7 p.m. if no concert, albeit I like to compose at night, so I'd like to linger till like 11-ish. Jazz combo and percussion ensemble were 6 p.m. Tuesday and Thursday. Do everything. It's fun. (laughs) Also fit gaming in between. Pro tip, get the faculty Wi-Fi password from your favorite off more bandwidth. I think Michael's a genius. A genius. I think the the common thread here is that everyone's really busy. Absolutely. Uh, So Stephanie says, uh, non-music class anywhere from 8 to 10 a.m. Then music classes between 10 to 3 Three, <laughs> squeezing a lesson and practice time in there too. Once a week, we have read making, studio class, late afternoons and evenings is when ensemble rehearsals are scheduled and maybe some chamber groups. Y'all are so busy. Well, and I know it sounds weird, but I, I've enjoyed the summer. I find it resting and relaxful, but I find myself excited to go back. You said resting and relaxful. It's a new thing. <laughs> Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reads, private lessons, and high-quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B-flat key. All are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's UglyDucklingOboes.com. Consider buying your processed oboe and bassoon cane from those friendly folks over at Barton Cane. Processed with care and precision for your everyday reed-making needs. Take the pain and injury out of reed-making by letting Barton Cane do the hard, repetitive, boring stuff. Free up time for practicing, happy hours, hikes, baking, and spending time with friends and family. Barton Cane, here for you. Visit www.bartonkane.com. We are delighted to welcome to Double Read Dish freelance oboist and educator, Caitlin Kramer. Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Thank you both so much. I'm so excited. You both know that I am like a longtime DRD fan, OG fan, and I, it's an honor. 
Well, then you'll be shocked to know that my first question is to <laughs> ask how and when you came to the oboe. When did you start playing? So my oboe story, um, I tell it a lot because I work with young kids and I, I like to relay it to them because I think that part of teaching and part of what I like to do with my kids is make them feel like I've been there and I've been in their shoes. Um, I can remember so many moments going through this oboe journey where I didn't feel like that. And so I think that that's something that I, I really try to think about. So I picked the oboe in fourth grade. Um, we kind of went through the whole, like hold up the poster board of like, this is the instrument and um, play a musical example. And I had, I had been in piano lessons for a while. I started piano lessons in third grade and I did not like piano lessons. I was always into music and I, I don't come from a musical family. Uh, well, I do now. Um, and I'll probably talk about that. Um, but my, both my parents were, were people that they wished that they had music in their lives. And so they kind of made it a rule in our household growing up that, um, we had to do piano and then we could pick one other thing. So for me, it was piano and then eventually oboe for my brother, it was piano and then guitar for my sister, it was piano and gymnastics and then dance. And, um, for my youngest brother, it was piano and just like getting into stuff. Cause he's the youngest. So, um, so we, we all had to do piano and I, I knew that it was kind of, it seemed like this gateway into something that I wanted to do. Um, and, and I was a Disney kid of the nineties and I loved, you know, every nineties, Disney, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Beauty and the Beast, all these great kind of movie musicals that came out. Um, I grew up on a lot of like Broadway. Like I can remember, I don't know how normal this is, but like, I can remember being like eight and nine years old and being like, my favorite movie's Hello Dolly with Barbara Streisand. And I just <laughs> like, like, I just, I, I think that was just kind of a thing um, for us growing up. We, we really liked that type of entertainment as kids. So um, I guess my, my first kind of, you know, backtrack stepping stone into music and the oboe was really singing. Um, and so I, I had lots of opportunities in like public school system growing up and going through there um, to sing in, in choir. Um, and, and I liked doing that. And then we got to learn recorder. So, um, around the, the time of my son's age now, um, so like fourth grade and, and we did recorder and I was like, okay, like this is, this is kind of better to me than piano. Um, and it was more comfortable to me than singing because singing is so, um, to me, singing has always felt, very expressive and very good, but it, it feels very bare. Like you're, when you're singing and it's your voice, it's just you. And so I, I kind of knew that I, I needed to find something that wasn't piano to play. So in, at the end of fourth grade, when we're going through this instrument choosing process, um, I feel like there was the moment where the teacher held up the poster with the flute and played some flute excerpt um, on a, on a CD for us. And and all the girls in the class, like, raised the hand. And then the next was clarinet. Everyone who didn't raise their hand, raised their hand for clarinet. And I was like, okay, like, this isn't looking so good. I thought I wanted to play a woodwind instrument because it would fit in my backpack. And <laughs> <laughs> it fit in my backpack. 
Minus the bassoon. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Minus that. And I think I had a really interesting idea that I'll I'll think about sometimes, which is that um, I, I wanted to play something that I considered feminine for some reason. Um, And so that was a big thing in the eighties and nineties. Yeah. I remember that pressure. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? It's like the brass instruments or percussion for some reason were never even really an option in my mind. And I, for some reason, didn't like string instruments. (laughs) And so I knew I wanted to play some kind of type of feminine woodwind instrument. And, um, so the teacher holds up the oboe poster, um, and played an example from Peter and the Wolf, played the duck from Peter and the Wolf. And I was like, Oh, okay, perfect. Like I've heard this before. I watched the Disney short and I, I know this and I, I like that. Like, um, and so I just kind of went with that. I, I had never really even, I think at that point heard the oboe played live and in person. And I was just really, I, I kind of chose that for myself. Um, and so my middle school band director, there was a big rule where if you were going to play the oboe, you had to be in private lessons. And so, um, I was lucky. My parents were like, okay, no problem. Like, we'll get you the oboe. We'll get you the lessons. And, um, I kind of got going on it that way. So, um, I was very convinced by the way that I was not going to keep playing the oboe after middle school. I think like uh, when, when I went to middle school, there was a require an arts requirement for, um, for sixth graders, not, it became an elective in seventh and eighth grade, but for sixth graders, you had to either be in choir or band. And, um, so I was like, okay, fine band, like that's already kind of decided, but I, I really have this feeling that this was kind of a temporary thing. Like, you know, like I'll see how this goes, you know, and I think a big part of it, and this is another thing that I really try to focus on with my kids is not taking for granted the fact that a lot of kids and and younger students, they, they don't know that there is even an option to do something like major in music, um, in college. And I certainly didn't, um, I was just kind of like, okay, like this seems like something that everyone's doing and, you know, I'm going to kind of go along with it. So like an extracurricular um, activity that ultimately leads nowhere. Yes, exactly. (laughs) An extracurricular. And, and again, like it was one that I had chosen for myself, but, um, I was never, I'm not a sporty girl. I, I, again, I think that there is this big, um, you know, coming of age type of situation where you're trying a lot of different things and you're trying to figure out what, what you really like. And I had tried swim team. I had kind of tried volleyball. Um, I had tried some different athletic things and, you know, I, I think my parents, like, they kind of knew and they were like, oh, this letter keep kind of going through the motions and trying this stuff out. And, um, and then it came to oboe and I, I was, I was talented at the oboe right away. Um, I, I think it came from singing and having a pretty decent ear. Um, but I was not prepared to really own that at that time in middle school. Um, it, it took me quite a, quite a little bit to kind of get on board with the idea of, um, kind of stepping into owning that, that talent and owning that, um, that I, I could, you know, be something at this. So, um, so yeah, that's, it almost sounds like it, it, it was a, um, a mode of empowerment. Like once you Mm -hmm. realized that you were good at it and you could like take ownership of being good at it, it was, it became something that was, 
a, a powerful thing for you. Definitely. And I think about that at, at different points in my life. Um, you're exactly right. I, I think that it's interesting to think about the fact that the oboe was really something, you know, as kind of haphazard as it may have been, uh, it was something that I chose for myself. No one suggested this to me. No one kind of pushed me in this direction. I, I really kind of came up with that concept of playing the oboe on myself uh, on, on my own. And when I think about it, um, some of the best things in my life have, have been that type of scenario where, where I really just kind of followed my own instinct. And I, I went with my gut and, and I went out a little bit on a limb. Um, and, and I have m- multiple kind of stories like that about playing the oboe and being an oboist that, that have really worked in my favor. Um, and where, where it kind of took an act of, of bravery and, um, to some degree really kind of, um, yeah, having having to step out and and do something a little bit unexpected and do something a little bit scary. So yeah, but I um I kind of needed permission to be good at the oboe, and so I I got that when um I was in eighth grade, and this was really the point where I was like, okay, I'm sitting on the bleachers at football games. I want to be a cheerleader, um, and I am not doing marching band. Like the this is the way, and so um my parents, I think they were always against that idea. They just, um, I'm very fortunate in that, um, although my parents are not musicians, they have always been extremely supportive of my siblings and I in the arts. Um, my mom was a mom who was all up in my business. And, um, I think that's something that I don't, I don't necessarily see as much now, honestly, in a lot of parents and families. Um, I think, working with younger kids, there's, um, a little bit of a movement right now to, to kind of let the kids decide. Um, and on the one hand that, that can be a really good empowering freeing thing for kids. But on the other, um, I do think that it's the responsibility of the adult in a lot of situations to, to be the parent and to, to know their child and to, um, kind of try to foresee some things for them. And so I was really fortunate, um, to have a mom, that, that did a lot of that for me. So one day I'm singing an eighth grade band and this guy that I'd never seen before comes in. He was youngish guy, um, had a goatee, was very tall. And I was like, Oh, you know how it is when you're in middle school and someone strange comes into a classroom. It's like, okay, what are you, you're in my space. What are you, what are you doing here, man? So, um, he comes in and I get pulled aside, um, and he wants to talk to me and I'm like, oh, okay, this is weird. So, um, I go into my band director's office with him And he um, says, you know, my name is David Pappenhagen. I'm the band director at Portage Northern High School, where where you're going to be going next year. And um, we need an oboe player in one of our bands. And they had three bands at the high school. And I, of course, was assuming like, okay, like, it's definitely the lowest one. It was definitely the highest one. And they were going to Carnegie Hall, and they didn't have an oboe player. And they were playing things there like... um, Anthony Iannacone, um, After a Gentle Rain, um, Irish Tune from County Dairy, like all this kind of like stuff with oboe in it. And um, so I, of course, was like, there's no way, like this sounds terrifying and it is not within my plan of quitting the oboe. 
So I go home and tell my parents about it. And like good parents, they're like, oh yeah, like you're going to do that. You're going. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so we worked out this whole thing. You know, I was crying. I was like, no, you know, there's no way that I can do this. And um, we worked out a deal where this, this would have never flown by the way. Now, nowadays, um, you know, this was in like 1998, 1999 ish around there. And so um, we had a student teacher in my eighth grade band class who went to my, my high school um, and he was interested in being a band director. And so he would come down during the eighth grade period and kind of be there and do paperwork and run errands and do different stuff. And so we worked it out where I would drive up with him in his car to go to wind ensemble at my high school. My dad on his lunch would then come and pick me up. And we did this every day for my eighth grade year um, so that I could go to wind ensemble um, and be in there and be at their rehearsals every, every single day. Um, I missed part of like the class that I was coming back to. I think I had lunch or something right after band, but we worked it out in such a way where that's what happened. Um, And I remember coming home from that first rehearsal with them and just being, you know, I was like, obliterated. I was like, there's no way that, that I can do this. Um, and again, like I was so lucky to have parents that were like, yes, you can, like, you can definitely do this. Um, I, I went to my oboe lesson after that and my teacher was so sweet. Um, she, I was terrified of this music. It had like dotted eight sixteenth notes that I had never seen before (laughs) and like sharps in the music. And I, you know, I was just, not having it. And, and she was so sweet and encouraging. Um, my, my middle school oboe teacher's name was Martha and she played on Amerigo. And I thought that her oboe sound was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And she was so nice. She recorded all of my band music on a cassette tape for me so that I could follow along along and play along with it. Because that was, that was really something that, um, I had already done a lot back in the day. You guys probably too. Like I had my, I had my CD player in my room and I would hear different things with the oboe and I would pause it and I would rewind it and replay it and a bazillion times so that I could try to, you know, figure it out really fast on my oboe and then play along with it. And so I kind of told her, you know, it would really help me. I, I did so much by ear back then. Um, I did not understand so many rhythms, um, but I had, I had a really good ear. Um, and I, I do think that has a lot to do with singing. And, um, and so she, she did that for me and I went in and I learned my music and we figured it out. And so, um, the next year, my freshman year was when we were going to Hardy Hall, um, to do the national band festival. And, um, I, by that point I had bought more into band. Um, and I had kind of been around these older kids who were showing up for these after school rehearsals and had really nice instruments. And they were studying with the, with the professors at Western Michigan university and seeing that you I had like, it modeled wow. for you. Yes. I had it modeled for me. And, and I had a lot of encouragement from um, my high school band director was amazing. Like he, he would, he was so encouraging and he really modeled this mutual respect. He, you know, it, part of it was he, he was young then um, he was, he was in his early thirties when he had that job. And, um, and he really kind of taught in a way that I hadn't experienced before. It wasn't the, it wasn't the kind of old school mentality, like, um, of 
inherent respect. Like you need to respect me because I'm your elder. You need to respect me because of what I know that you don't. It was this kind of new attitude of we can respect each other, which, Mm -hmm. you know, like if, if I respect you and you respect me, we can work together and kind of go forward from that place. Mm -hmm. And so he was really the first person to kind of model that kind of partnership style of teaching. Like I, I never felt like he was really instructing us or lording over us in, in this kind of educator um, mentality. Like he was, it was, is very much, you know, somewhere between a peer and a teacher. And so um, our ensemble, we were, we were able to do really great things together. Um, and, and so that, that really helped too. Um, kind of, kind of having someone encouraging and, um, you know, he, he was the person that told me, you know, like, this is a major that people do in college. And, you know, I think that you have an aptitude for this. And, you know, it was the first time I heard um, an English horn. We, we were over at the MSBOA festival and it was at um, Hill Auditorium at, at U of M. And um, I saw this big oboe and I was like, oh my gosh, what is that? And, and he and um, another one of the, the older guys in the ensemble, they're like, well, okay, well, that's English horn. Like, you really need to know what this is. And. Um, so, you know, the next thing I know I have, you know, I'm telling my mom and dad about this English horn and we're getting the momentum going here <laughs> and, and we're driving to Woodwind and Brasswind and South Bend and, um, we're looking at English horns. That was back when they had like a, a big showroom there and you could just, you know, you could just go buck wild and go over to Woodwind and Brasswind and South Bend and, and, you know, read them the serial numbers from the catalog and just take out as many instruments as you wanted from, from their warehouse. And they would let you play them all day if you wanted to. And so I was very, very fortunate that my parents, you know, they were there, you know, my mom loved it because my, my mom still loves it. I'm 38 years old and my mom loves the, the I told you so story. So um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a moment when I was in sixth grade and she, um, she had this like Sounds of England Christmas CD and it had the Vaughn Williams on it. Um, and she would play it and um, she'd be like, oh my gosh, Caitlin, like I can just see you doing this someday. And I would get mad at her. Like I, I was like, mom, like I can, I'm like playing this B flat major scale. I sound like trash. And, you know, I, I, I took it. I was like offended that she would think that I could do this whole big thing <laughs> that I could be good at the oboe. So um, when it was time for my senior recital at DePauw at my undergrad, um, I did a big surprise and I told my teacher this whole story. And so I played the, I played the Vaughn Williams and um, she was just in the audience, like sobbing and it was awesome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So would you briefly walk us through your training and educational journey? And then I have a lot of questions to ask you about your career after that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, Let's see. I had a couple of different oboe teachers growing up. I had um, my teacher kind of up until that eighth grade time. And then once I think she could kind of see in me that um, this is Martha, the Marigold Martha. And um, she, (laughs) Marigold Martha. And she kind of walked me up to this point um, where she could kind of see something in me. And she really, you know, she kind of stepped out of a lesson one day and, and said to my parents, you know, you you really need to start thinking about, you know, she's got this Loray oboe now that you've gotten her and I can see her, you know, needing more than what I can give her. Um, and that was, that was really sweet of her and really kind of her. Um, and, and I could kind of feel it too. Um, I, I wanted to kind of be pushed a little bit more. Like I was seeing some of the older students and in my ensembles, um, 
being pushed and, and I, I wanted to kind of see what I could do. So, um, it was really nice. Um, my band director for me reached out to, um, Michael Miller, who's one of the former oboe professors at Western Michigan university. And, um, he was so kind enough to come into one of our, um, like evening rehearsals for wind ensemble. And he gave a sectional and he listened to me play and, and he agreed to teach me. Um, I was, I think one of the only students that he, he really taught, he, he didn't teach younger students. Um, so it was really nice of him to, to kind of agree to teach me. So I started going for lessons with him at Western, um, when I was a freshman. Um, and then I, I transitioned a little bit away from him. Um, after I met, um, a teacher at seminar, um, at Western Michigan, they do, um, WMU does a great program in the summers, um, where they let kids come and stay in the dorms and you take kind of mini like theory and history classes and playing ensembles and you get kind of like the, the college preview experience. So I did that in high school. Um, and I met, um, a former WMU student there, um, who was living in Plainwell. Her name's Kathleen Mudo. And, um, she, she really kind of, it was the first time where I kind of felt like I was developing a rapport with the teacher. Um, and it was also the, like, I had had this very serious male teacher. Um, and I feel like this is something that, that doesn't necessarily get, get talked about a lot, but I'd had this very serious male teacher and, you know, I was eager to kind of ingest everything that he was telling me and, and, um, you know, show up to my lessons prepared and, and do the things that, that he was asking of me. But I, there's this other aspect of kind of wanting to follow someone and learn from them that I was missing having a male teacher. And, um, that was that I, I really, I, I enjoyed and kind of missed the, the nurturing and mothering aspect of having a female teacher um, and also just looking to someone for how my life could potentially be one day. I feel like I was doing that a lot. Um, I, I was, I was kind of wanting someone where I could see what they were doing and maybe kind of like envision myself in, in some version of their shoes in the future. So um, I really gelled with this teacher and I started taking lessons with her and, and then, um, yeah, she helped me get into college. So um, I auditioned at a few different schools for, for my undergrad and ended up at DePaul university, um, which is in Greencastle, Indiana. It's about 40 miles North of Indianapolis. So um, my first impression of DePaul was that um, again, kind of like went ensemble. I went there and auditioned and it seemed small to me. I was very eager to try to get to a city or something because I think that's what I thought you had to do to, to be a professional musician. And, um, but, but I, I loved, um, I loved my teacher that I auditioned for, um, animatics. And, um, I, I really, again, kind of gelled with her and I was like, okay, you know, like, I'll give this a chance. Like what's the worst that could happen if I hate it out in the cornfields of Indiana, I can, I guess I can transfer or something. So, um, I went to DePa, um, and, uh, again, like it, it was such a, it was such kind of a happenstance situation, the way that it fell together, me just kind of going to this place. I didn't know anyone from high school who was going there. My mom's actually a DePa alum and that was a big part of it too. She, she kind of wanted me to go to the school that she went to. And again, I was like, oh man, I don't know. Um, I was starting to, I was starting to get tired as we do of my mom wanting 
me to do things. And so, um, so yeah, I, getting to DePaul was a little bit of a culture shock because even though it was a small school, um, it, it was definitely a learning curve that I hadn't experienced. Um, I was really used to being a big fish in a small pond. And by my, by the end of my time at DePaul, I, I really felt that way there, but, um, in the beginning it was, it was tricky. So, um, I think those first couple of years of undergrad can, can really be a big, um, learning curve for a lot of people. And it was for me, it really was, um, learning about what my teacher expected of me. I was really learning how to manage my time and what it meant to really practice effectively and you know, all these things that we learn in undergrad. And, um, so yeah, in the summers, um, I would come home to Kalamazoo and, um, Anna was, she was not a huge stickler for me having to apply to this festival or study with this person or do things. She was like, you know, like, I expect you to keep up your routine. I expect you to keep in shape with your playing. Um, but you know, like, I also expect you to be a normal human being and, and live your life. And so I would come home during the summer. Um, and I would, um, take lessons with Monica Fosna, who, um, she's, former principal from um, Kalamazoo Symphony and now English Horn in um, BSO in Detroit Symphony. So I would take lessons with Monica. Yeah, she's, she's awesome. And um, again, like, I think that I, I was, I was really kind of looking to these women in my life to really be role models to me. Um, I, I didn't, I don't know if I really bought into that at the time, but I really do believe that that's what I was doing. And I saw Monica and she was this independent, very, um, I always thought Monica was very serious when I studied with her and I was a little bit afraid of her because she was so awesome. And, and she was just a boss lady, um, in a different way than, than my teacher was. Um, and so I, I would go to these lessons with her and we would talk so much about, um, you know, reads and, and she, she would introduce me to a lot of new concepts during the summers. And, and that was really great to, to learn from someone like that, who, who was a, a real different perspective for my teacher. So, um, after DePaul, I, um, applied to a few different grad schools. I was pretty sure at the time I really wanted to come back to Michigan. I love Michigan. Um, this is where I, I spent the bulk of my growing up years and, um, it's just a great place. We get four seasons. Um, there are a lot of really great, um, pockets of kind of arts cultures and Kalamazoo is, is no different. It's a very artistic community. And, um, and I, I kind of wanted to get back closer to home. Um, I didn't end up doing that. <laughs> um, I thought I was going to go to Michigan state university for, for a little bit. Um, and then I got a call from, um, San Francisco conservatory and I had been pulled off of the wait list and they wanted to know if I wanted to come study there. And I was just, elated. I was so excited. Um, I, I had really wanted to study with, um, a symphony musician. My undergrad, um, teacher, Anna is, um, is, and was a freelancer. And so I, I got, I got to absorb that a lot. Um, Anna would even, Anna, she, she kind of pushed a union application in my hands somewhere toward the end of undergrad. And, um, I think it was probably maybe not the end, maybe junior between sophomore and junior year. Um, and you know, she, she started handing my name out to contractors and things in Indianapolis and I started playing. And so I really got to, um, kind of step into her life. And, and again, she, she let me kind of experience that with her. And so I knew that I, I wanted another perspective yet again, and I wanted to kind of see 
what an orchestral musician's life really looked out like. Um, so I was so excited to go to SFCM and study with um, Pam Smith, the second oboist of the San Francisco Symphony. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm very lucky. Again, like, I feel like I, I have these degrees of luck, you guys, where I, um, I have these things kind of happen to me and they were just what I needed to have happen. Um, I'm so thankful to, to have gotten kind of this really rounded oboistic education from, from these different ladies. So you very obviously, um, relate deeply to middle and high school oboists. That's your, like, that's where your heart is. It's very clear, um, that, you know, your unique skill set is with this age group. And Mm -hmm. I would love to hear more about setting yourself up as a private teacher, how to successfully run a studio, um, Mm -hmm. how to, you know, like, let's get into the nitty gritty of it. Let's talk about website. Let's talk about studio policy. Let's talk about, you know, lesson structures. Like this is like such an amazing skill set of yours. I'd love to dive in. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty. So, um, once again, like I was so lucky my teacher, um, I think she had like I think she had one semester to kind of squeeze in oboe pedagogy in my undergrad with Stephen Mayala and I, and we were sitting in this closet of a space. Yes. (laughs) Angel, (laughs) special man. Um, And I can talk about that too. I love talking about oboe relationships and, and talking about my story with Stephen because it was very different then than it is now. And I share that with students too. So, um, but yeah, I think she had like a semester to teach us everything she could about, about pedagogy. And I was so fortunate because Anna, um, she had a dual degree, has a dual degree from Ithaca. Um, she has a music ed background and oboe performance. Um, so she really gave me that foundation for, for oboe pedagogy with, with a lot of her mentalities and approaches to things that I wouldn't have gotten from, from another, um, oboist, I really believe. So, um, so, and, and once again, this was, this was back in the day, you guys, this was like early 2000s. I graduated from DePauw in 2003. So I did not have any type of fancy coursework in like marketing yourself as a musician. I'm so jealous of everyone that gets to do that now. I think it's so cool and so amazing. Um, and it's such a vital part of, of education for, for music majors, I think. Um, but yeah, she, she taught us how to write a resume and, and kind of, um, how to approach teaching, but she, again, really left it in our hands. And I remember her saying, um, we had to give all these sample lessons as part of our pedagogy little mini class. And, um, we had to bring in kind of, you know, do the thing where you bring in a, a non-oboist, but from the school of music and, and teach them a lesson and get graded on it and stuff. And I remember at the time, I, I didn't really know how to take it. Um, but I found it to be such a compliment over, over the years. She, she watched me teach this lesson and she said, you know, Caitlin, your strength as a teacher is, is just going to be the way that you relate to people and the way that, you know, you are the way that your personality is. And at the time I, again, like I, I didn't really know how to ingest that. I was like, Oh, she's saying, I was like reading it into it too much. I was like, if he's saying that I'm like, not that good, like technically as a teacher and I, I'm just a fun person to be around. And, and now I just, I think it's such a supreme compliment because that is such a huge part of teaching is is finding that balance, like I spoke about with my high school band director of, of really 
forming a bond with your students because once you have that trust and you have that relationship and it starts to get set up, that's when amazing things can kind of take off and, and happen. And it's, it's the best. So, um, so yeah, my students, um, they're great. First of all, they, they all come from great families with supportive parents and, and that helps so much, but, um, yeah, so I have, let's see, I have 13 middle school and high school students right now. And, um, I really like to get a sense of the student for lessons. Um, I don't have a, a super strict oboe schemata that, that I make them all follow. Um, I'm a fan of Rubank. Um, I'm a fan of getting them kind of started in there. And then my rule is that you have to have your supper. You have to have your meat and potatoes, but then you also have to have fun stuff because I think it's so, it's so important to remember you know, why you started. And most of us didn't start because we dreamed of, of playing, you know, the, the first few pages of Pari Scales or, or Rubank. And most of us started because we, we heard an oboe in a movie or we saw someone play it. And, and sometimes I even wonder if it, if it is that, um, relatability and it's more about, you know, the sense that you get from the person rather than it is the instrument or, you know, again, like envisioning yourself doing that. And that just seems, we all start it because it's fun and because, you know, we, we enjoy it. So, um, I'm so thankful that my students help me remember that all the time because it's so crucial. So, um, so yeah, we do, um, I, I love long tones. I'm a big fan of long tones. Um, and I try to make that something that, um, make all types of foundation exercises into things that my students can just kind of pull out of their bag of tricks as a warm up before band. Um, we do this, this etude um, that my teacher, Anna wrote called spider. Um, and it's, I think it's kind of like a Remington long tone situation where there's always a lower pitch and then you're just ascending and descending by half step. Um, but we'll do it with a drone or we'll do it, um, we'll do it kind of starting and, um, starting on different pitches. And, um, but yeah, I, I like to talk with them a lot about how to use their body and, and breathing. Um, I think again, like that, that awareness, it's, it's never too soon to kind of start that. Um, writing a studio policy is, is a big thing for a lot of people figuring out how to create, um, create a studio. Um, and I think that it's so important to sit down and do it um, and really adhere to that. And you learn, I've had times when my studio policy has been very inclusive and I've had times when my studio policy hasn't needed to be. And, and you kind of edit it as, as you go and, and figure out what needs to be included in there. Um, but I do have, have a studio policy that I, I have all students and parents sign um, at the beginning of every school year, even if they've been with me from sixth grade and they're like going into their senior year, we, we just do it. Um, I think getting started with that, a, a great place to start always is just kind of with your teaching philosophy and, and kind of thinking where you want to go from there. And my teaching philosophy, it, you know, it, again, it, it's in flux, I feel from time to time, but it's always been just kind of this inclusive attitude that, um, you know, I, I'm not here to show my students what I know. I'm here to show my students that I've been in their shoes and that, um, you know, that I've, I've, I've seriously, I've, I've sat in their chair. Um, I've shared their struggles and I know how it feels to, you know, go through all of these different things. Music teaches you a lot about your emotions and, 
um, these kids that I primarily teach, they're at a very crucial emotional stage in life. You know, they, they're going through a lot of changes. They're finding themselves as people. And um, for me personally, music has always just been, you know, it's akin to religion. You both know how it is. It, it, it just becomes this thing where it's a touchstone in your life. And, and so coming back to it at different times, whether you're happy and you're playing or you're struggling or you're playing or, you know, it, it's a constant. And so um, really approaching the student from this kind of holistic standpoint and knowing that each kid is different and that each kid has a different learning style and not every kid, not the end game is different for everyone. Not every kid is going to be a college music major. I'd say that, you know, 65 to 75% of my students are not college music majors. They end up playing community ensembles. They end up still doing things like giving lessons or, um, or still playing. And that's the beauty, I think, of playing a double reed instrument is that if you're a proficient player, like you're still going to play, even if you mm-hmm. don't have a music degree. And, and um, so I really try to be kind of encouraging that um, that students can know that they, they're not going to be kind of pigeonholed into this routine where we just do these things because we have to. I want them to feel like they have some degree of ownership over their lessons and that they, um, you know, when we choose repertoire, especially for the older students, I like for them to do research and get on YouTube. I mean, thank God for YouTube. Like when I was in high school, my teacher, Michael Miller at WMU, he would, he would give me a call number for the card catalog and tell me to go get this vinyl, go get this LP. And I was like, what, what do I even do? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't have a record player. And, um, you know, now they have, they they have this huge resource available to them. They can jump on Spotify or iTunes or anywhere and and hear these pieces. And so I really like for them to, to kind of do some of that research for the younger kids. I, um, I'll play through a few different options for them for, for rep pieces for solo and ensemble and, and for, um, just for fun. And, but I, but I let them choose. Um, I'm really kind of big into that, uh, into them having, different degrees, varying degrees of ownership over, over their study and over private lessons. So, um, starting a private lesson studio, um, this is a tricky one too. I think that you have to be a little bit relentless with it. Um, not a little bit, a lot. Um, I think you have to really get out there and and make connections. And, um, I think that we should never overlook like our passion and our enthusiasm for something as being really um, just palatable and and contagious for other people. Um, The times that I have gone into a middle school classroom to do an oboe demo for people um, and had, you know, I asked the question, how many of you have ever seen or heard an oboe? A couple of kids raised their hand. And at the end, I asked the question, how many of you want to try the oboe today? And it's like the whole class. And, you know, part of that is like, seeing and being presented with the oboe and and like, okay, like this is what this instrument is. But another part of it, I think is to not overlook this whole concept of, of being a role model to kids and um, being someone that it's, it's not always just notes on a page or a cool wooden oboe or a table full of oboe reads. It's, it's being an adult that they can look up to and they can, you know, they can relate to. And um, you know, some kids, some kids have that really consistently in their life and, and some kids don't. Um, 
I've had parents plainly say to me before, like, I love that my kid gets to come work with you every week because I know that they admire you and that they look up to you and I want that for them in their life. And, um, I, I, as a parent, like I can definitely attest to that. If, if my child's struggling with something, we, we had an event, um, a couple winters ago, he started basketball, my son, Noah. And, um, I'll tell you, man, it was his first time playing a, a team sport and it, there's nothing harder than watching your child struggle at something as a parent sitting there. And because it's so, I think in a mother's instinct to want to fix problems for their kids. And, you know, as a private lesson teacher, it's important to kind of understand that and know that as well. Um, and then duly understand and know that you can give kids the tools to do that for themselves. And that's, you know, that's really where you step in and, and, and can help. So, um, I think that it's so valuable to know that, um, that your passion can become someone else's passion too. And that that's where kind of the magic of, of being a role model and being a teacher to kids can come in. But, um, I think that it's so important to, to get into schools now that we're, you know, coming out of post COVID era and it's an easier thing to do. Um, it's great to have relationships with band directors, youth orchestra conductors, um, and make those connections and, and have conversations with people. Um, same goes for your playing. I mean, really it marketing yourself is as easy as, um, you know, talking to people and really being yourself. I think that there might be a misconception out there that, you know, we have to, we have to go into these teaching and, and performing situations and, and again, kind of really exude this expertise. And I think that we can be mistaken in that and that there is such power and strength and, and just being yourself and, and showing your personality and um, showing how you can relate to people, whether it's a colleague that you're sitting next to an orchestra or a student that, that you're helping. So um, for those of you who don't follow Caitlin's studio on the internet, I think you really need to like friend her, of course, but I, <laughs> for a long time, like, it sounds funny, but I'm a member of your student oboe studio group. Um, not necessarily to replicate what you do, but to find inspiration because I find you to be among the most um, creative at building a studio culture, higher ed or not higher ed. And so I, I like to look to you basically, like I said, not to replicate, but as accountability for there is a more thoughtful way to go about this than just lather, rinse, repeat. And, you know, some of the stuff I've seen like uh, summer punch cards or studio t-shirts or camp or, you know, the infographics that you make and, and things like mm -hmm. that, even studio recitals can feel incredibly optional if you get into a lather, rinse, repeat mode. And so I'd love to maybe hear you talk about bringing creativity into pedagogy, uh, which we assume is required of performance, but often I'll just speak for myself. I don't always hold myself accountable for bringing that same energy into my teaching and how your studio and its culture benefit from that approach. Oh, well, thank you. That's that's such a sweet compliment. It makes me feel like I need to, I, I, I need to be better about my studio page. Um, I need to kind of get on there and, and really amp it up some more. Um, but yeah, so again, like, um, animatics, she's just, she's, she's my oboe big sister. She, she is truly everything that a mentor could and should be. And I owe her so much. Um, 
And, and that's something that, you know, I really, I really learned from her and it, that's where it was kind of derived. Um, cause we had a very small studio at DePa. Um, for the bulk of the time, the only performance majors at DePa were, were Steven Maiella and I. Um, and so she, she would get really creative with the ways that she, she chose to teach us things. Um, she would invite us to, um, all of her mock auditions. Um, she would, again, she, you know, I, I would play second oboe to her on church gigs and different things like that. And, um, so, so she, she was really the first person to kind of show me that, you know, it's not all about what Jackie said, like the, the, the wash, rinse, repeat cycle, um, that, that kind of some of these different experiential things can be really important. Um, I, I read a lot. Um, I love to read, um, a lot of kind of music based, um, psychology books. Um, I just got the, the one that, um, John Simer was talking about on one of the DRDs, um, the fundamentals of musical acoustics, because I was so interested stop in what it. he said. Of, stop it. <laughs> I, I'm so excited. This is the type of stuff I do. You guys, I am a full out nerd. So, um, you know, I, I, I have a book that I read within the last couple of years. It's Twyla Tharp's book called The Creative Habit. Um, and she talks a lot about this in, in this book. Um, it's a great resource for, for any creative, any artist. Um, and she kind of talks about um, her schedule and her processes and, and the things that she goes through. But, um, you know, it really all comes from this place of, of things that resources that I wish that I would have had growing up. Um, I feel like a lot of times I was, you know, in a small oboe section as we are, um, or that I was, um, kind of doing the same things in the lessons. So, um, sometimes I will, I'll, I'll just go straight to the source and I'll ask kids what, what they want to do. Um, I was talking in a lesson with a student, we, we were talking about tie dyeing or something and, um, and then we started, she got out her swab and we both kind of at the same time had like a light bulb moment where you're we like, it would be so fun at summer camp to tie dye swabs and we should totally do that. So, you know, I, I like to hear their input too, because it's, you know, it's, it's all for them. Um, so swab yeah, tie dye I, is such a good <laughs> idea. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. Or crafting our own reed cases, um, whether it was out out of like the Altoids tin or, um, you know, you can just buy the strip of the, the foam that you can super glue into anything. And, and so, so yeah, um, I really like, I love getting them together for things. Um, I love doing studio Christmas parties where we, it's really about a social aspect because again, you know, we're so accustomed as double read players to being one of, one of few. Um, and so I love getting them together so that they can broaden their scope and so that they know that there's a community, you know, that they can be a part of, whether it's now or, you know, looking to the future. And that's something that I love about this podcast, which is that, you know, we all of a sudden like have this vast community that, you know, who would have known, like you guys, this is so great. It's such, it's such a, it's such a great way of bringing people together. And I think that's the place that I try to come from a lot of times with, with studio creativity and, and things for them too, um, is just so that they know that they're, they're not the only ones. Um, 
I have, um, I do Obo Dojo with them, which is from Laura Medisky. Yeah. And if they want to learn more about um, Obo Dojo, she did a very detailed article in the Double Read in, a couple yeah, of years in, back. Yeah, in the Double Read. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we do Obo Dojo. And so um, all their names are kind of up here on my whiteboard. And, and from time to time, they'll get in competitive mode and they'll kind of look you know, they'll look at someone else's spot on, on the Obo Dojo board and they'll say, um, I have one student right now um, and he, he loves to do that. He'll be like, oh, well, this person, it looks like they moved and, you know, I didn't move. And so um, I think that I, I try to kind of squash a lot of that type of stuff really early. Um, and I'll, I'll tell my Steven story um, in regard to that. And Steven, Myla, and I, you know, he's one of my best friends now in, in the absolute world. I love Steven. We talk almost every single day. And when we were in undergrad together, it wasn't like that. There was a weird, um, I think, and we both agree on this. So he has no problem with me relating this story at all. Um, there's a weird unspoken aspect of competition between us. And I think that we just weren't in a place where we could, I think we both thought that there were that we were very dissimilar at the time like we both couldn't be in a place where we saw how similar and and how much in common we actually had and so that's something that I I really try to bring across to students too um whether it's in a master class where I'm just meeting students for the first time or um just kind of like studio culture I I love for them to know that you know really you guys might think that you're like this and you're all just like this and it, the sooner that you can learn that in this field, I think it's absolutely the better. It's, it's such an important thing to, to kind of try to latch onto. So, um, yeah, I, I come from a creative background. My mom's an artist. And so I feel like that's, um, I don't know if you guys feel like this with anyone in your family, but I feel like they're kind of like those boundaries around some of those things that other people do. And you're like, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to step into this artistic side of things. Cause that's what someone else in my family does. But I, I do love to kind of doodle and draw. And, and so um, some of those ideas will, will come out of, of that. Um, but yeah, really, really just kind of, again, like relating it back to the students and, and thinking about what they could possibly need and um, you know, how, how best to help them and, and how best to make things accessible to them. Um, you know, a lot of them are on devices. And um, so to have something compact and, and something easily portable, um, like an infographic, um, is, is a great way to, to reach them quickly. Um, and I, I think um, the most recent one that I made was was for a master class where I was working with high school students um, at WMU for, um, for an honor band scenario. And, um, I just wanted to create something. These were all very talented students. They were, they're all advanced. They were chosen from different parts of Michigan to come and represent at this all-star band. And I, I had a different plan actually worked out for them for the masterclass. I think we were just going to kind of talk about long tones or something. And, um, I played with them in the morning and I was like, wow, these students are really talented. They're really good. You know, I don't know if we need to talk about playing as much as we do something that, you know, what's something that I could give them that someone else might not be able to, or, or that they might not have focused on or overlooked. And so I, I was thinking about practicing and, and that's something that's, it, it really is difficult for a lot of kids. I think that it's so easy um, to get overwhelmed when you approach a piece or an assignment from your teacher, if you're left to your own devices. And so I just came up with this infographic to kind of break down like 
how long to spend on these different aspects of practice. And we talked about that for a good chunk of time and, and it was all news to them. And so I think that that's an important thing to do too, is, is, um, as a teacher, it, it's really good to kind of just stay fresh and, um, remind yourself that as a professional, you know, we have, we have a lot of things on our mind at any given point in the day and our standards are, are different, um, than, than a young beginning obelist. And, and so not to overlook, you know, something that you may in your life consider simplified is brand new and fresh to someone else. It's the first time they're hearing it. And that's something that I try to be really proactive about when I'm teaching, especially because, um, it's the truth for sure. This is wild, but this is our last question. What advice do you have to a young person to as- who aspires to have a career like yours? <sighs> so I think that, first of all, I think be open. And if I could tell my younger self something, I know this is another DRD question, but it, it definitely relates. So if I could tell myself something, it, it would be, or, or tell a, a younger version of me or a student, um, it would be to step into your ownership of what you're involved in as soon as possible. Um, I think that when I was even in my early twenties, even in grad school, I think that it was challenging to envision myself in, in my career. I, I didn't know what it was going to look like yet. I knew that I've always known that it was oboe that I wanted to play. I just love to play the oboe. And that, that makes me a good freelancer because, you know, there's the age old question, what's your, what's your favorite type of music to play or perform? And, um, you know, the, the, the answer that we all give, which is whatever I'm working on, but that really, that really rings true for me. I try to make everything, you know, everything's already my favorite because I'm getting to play it on the oboe. But I think that as soon as you can start envisioning yourself, um, utilizing your strengths to help other people, it's only for the better. Um, I didn't really consider teaching. This is crazy. I I didn't see myself as a teacher. I think that, you know, we have these notions as music students about what it means to have a good career or even what it means to have an illustrious career, what it means to be successful as a musician. And for a lot of people, myself included, it, it meant, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to have an orchestra job or you have to have a full-time college teaching position. And um, I think that it's so important to not get stuck in that mindset and instead really look toward your strengths as a musician and your strengths as a person. What, what are you good at? Are you a good communicator? Are you an empathetic person? Are you, you know, are you any, any of these different characteristics that you can have and, and try to step into your ownership of, of really envisioning yourself in, in, in a career, um, whether it's as an educator or performer, um, you know, I, I don't think I ever would have in, envisioned myself as a freelancer. I think that in my early twenties, um, and even mid twenties, I really was like, oh, freelancing, like that, that has to be stressful, not really knowing what you're going to be doing or, or, you know, not having kind of like a set plan. Um, and for me, um, it just kind of fell into place and it, and it really turned into this amazing thing where, 
I've had so many opportunities to play music and that's, and at the end of the day, that's all I ever wanted to do was, was play the oboe. And so um, I think that if I would have spent less time kind of worrying about um, those different standards that we have that, that really are silly when you think about them. Like if I was in a full-time orchestra, I never would have probably played with half of the amazing performers that I played with in Las Vegas. And um, I never would have had the opportunity then to get teaching experience and um, kind of build a studio and, and build this very varied life that I have as, as a musician. Um, Jenna Ingle is such an amazing friend of mine. Um, I play with her a lot in South Bend Symphony and her book, The Happiest Musician. I know you guys have read it, but everyone needs to read that book. She she talks about freelancing and she talks about cultivating your own career and um, it's so empowering to read. And, and so just reaffirming that, you know, success is is really what what we make it as musicians and, and how great. Um, that, that we have the opportunity to do so many, so many wonderful things as musicians and, and get paid money for it. <laughs> it's amazing. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was a thank delight. As always, no every time I talk to you, I'm charmed. Oh, <laughs> thank you. I feel the exact same way. You're both amazing. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview, that you have a wonderful back to school, that you don't forget to check out our coloring book and um, also rate and review on iTunes. Follow us on social media. We love to connect with you there. Galit, who's going to be featured on our next episode? We had an amazing conversation with Gina Kufari, co-principal bassoon of the Orpheus Chamber Orchestra, and we can't wait to share it with you. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade. Go make reads.